Bishop Chester Wright, and this is the video teaching series, The Biblical Principles That Govern the Eyes. This is lesson number 19, and uh, I'd like to read a scripture to start with here. Ecclesiastes 6 and 9 says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The Amplified says, Better is the sight of the eyes, the enjoyment of what is available to one, than the cravings of wandering desire. This is also vanity, emptiness, falsity, futility, and a striving after the wind and a feeding on it. So the title of this lesson is, Our Eyes Create Desires. What we fix our eyes on ultimately becomes what we desire the most. Our eyes should be fixed on what the Lord has already given us, not roaming about to make note of everything we don't have. Why? Because when I lust for stuff I don't have, rather than seeking the Lord and giving, seeking his kingdom first and letting him add it to me, now I open myself up to stuff. The roaming eye inevitably finds something that triggers wrong desires. The Bible says be content in, in whatever state you find yourself. It says can, be content with, with what you have. So covetousness starts with the eyes. Covetousness starts with the eyes. And covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. So ultimately, these desires that my eyes create from what they see, these become our mentors and motivators. They instruct us in what we should want that we don't have, and they motivate us to find out how to get them. This is, uh, it's very difficult to have peace when you're always dissatisfied with what you have. Always. It's very difficult to do that. I read the verse just a few moments ago. The King James, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation in spirit. Let me read a couple of more translations of this. The Bible of Basic English says, What the eyes see is better than the wandering of desire. This is to no purpose and a desire for wind. <laughs> wow. Contemporary English version says, It is better to enjoy what we have than to always want something else because that makes no more sense than chasing the wind. That one's pretty clear, isn't it? The easy-to-read version says this way, It is better to be happy with what you have than to always want more and more. Always wanting more and more is useless. It's like trying to catch the wind. It's like trying to catch the wind. You know, The scripture says, again, that we are to be content. We're to be content. You know, we always, you know, flesh always wants better. Flesh always wants better. Always want a better car. Always want a better house. Always want better food. Always want better clothes. Always, 
And if I allow it, I always want a better wife or I always want a better husband or I always better kids. I want better parents. I want, you know, we look at what others have that we think, we think they have that we don't have and we want that. It's covetousness and covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness will lead you away from God. Covetousness will lead me away from God. When I allow my eyes to dwell on what I don't have rather than what I do have, it triggers something within me that produces a desire, and now I need whatever it is that I am seeing, perhaps then even mentally sifting through ways to obtain it. Need. When when a want becomes a need, it rarely happens from God's perspective. He told, he told the, the people in Matthew chapter 6, he said, I know, I know you, have, you need food. I know, need, know you need clothes. I, I know those things. You don't have to pray for those things. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. You don't have to pray for those things. I'm your father. I know you need this. I know you need it. So you don't have to pursue it. He says, that's what the Gentiles seek after, the fatherless Gentiles. He said, I want want you to be involved with me on a different level, not just seeking for stuff from me. I'm your father. Fathers take care of their children. That's the principle at least. But he's the good father. He's the ultimate father. He's the eternal father. He's the heavenly father. He's not going to fail to do his job as a father. And if I'm praying for stuff that he promised to supply, I'm saying to him, I don't trust you. But it goes beyond that, you see. <laughs> he knows what I need. Every good father says to their two-year-old who's trying to grab the knife, no, no, no. Well, that two-year-old looks at you like, how you dare tell me no. I want that knife. I want it. Or the 12-year-old that wants to drive the car. I want to drive that car. Why can't I drive the car? But as a good father, we know that either those things are bad for them or that they're not yet old enough and developed enough, mature enough, naturally, to be able to utilize those things in a responsible way that won't become destructive to them or somebody else. Well, spiritually, it's just like that. The scripture says that God will withhold no good thing from them that love him. No good thing. Well, I don't have this, I don't have that. No. When a good thing, because of him knowing us and knowing our heart and knowing where we are in him at that time, when that good thing, if he gave us that good thing right now, that good thing might become a bad thing for us could easily happen. There was a couple in our church years ago. They had been married about 10 years. They did not have a child. They didn't have a child. They wanted a child. Married 10 years, wanted a child. This prophet came through and prophesied to them. And I found out later he was not a true prophet of God. But I didn't know that at the time, even though I was uncomfortable once he got here and what he was doing. He prophesied to them that they were going to have a child. About nine months and two weeks or so later, they had a son. 
What a curse. Because they began to serve that boy instead of serving God. They didn't make their decisions based on what God said, what the Word of God said. They make their decisions from that point on, on what they thought was best for their son. And they're not in the truth today. And their son doesn't know anything about the truth. Now, was it positive for them and this child? For them to have that child at that point? The results are there. The fruit of that, all of that, tells what the real thing was. That they let the blessing of God become their God instead of the God of the blessing. Now, why shouldn't my father, why shouldn't my heavenly father withhold from me something that potentially could be good, but at this point in my life would be bad? I received the Holy Ghost at age 12. I don't even know why. Just something was in me that I started praying at that point in my life for God to give me the wife that he wanted me to have. I was lonely. I didn't want to be lonely. Well, guess what? Uh, at, it, it's, at some point in time, in those, at an early period of time when I was praying, there were certain things that I wanted a wife. I thought that was my desire. I thought I was putting that list together. I wasn't. And over the years, uh, there were girls I liked. Some in the church, some out of the church. But I would always have to justify to myself and try to with God why I love this one and I wanted this one, even though she doesn't meet the list. And finally, with one, I said to God, that's, that's just my list. It's okay with me. I actually got engaged to that one. even though there were significant things on that list that she was not, could not do. Nice person. She just was not the right person for me. And I tried to bargain with God on this. It's okay with me if she can't do this. And he said, you still don't understand, do you? That list didn't come from you. That list came from me. And I gave you these things so that you wouldn't settle for less than what I wanted you to have. Because I prepared you for somebody and I prepared somebody for you. And it's my will that you only marry the one that I prepared for you. And that list simply was a check off. So you would understand, okay, these th- this or this or this is not there. And so therefore, I can't, I, that can't be the one. No matter how my emotions felt. Because I was so lonely, I was willing to fall in love with anybody that would treat me good, I guess. Until it came time to go on farther, and then my desire to, for God and pleasing God, all of a sudden he'd begin talking to me and go, oh, no, no, no. Now, there were times I could have pressed past that. I could have done it. I could have pushed through and said, nope, I'm marrying this one. I don't even, I can't even imagine where I'd be today if I'd done that. The one I was engaged to wasn't, it wasn't long after she got married. They weren't even apostolic anymore. She didn't want God the way I wanted her. 
nice person. She's a nice person, beautiful girl. Treated me really good. She treated me well. I cared about her emotionally. But the problem was, she wasn't the one God prepared me for. And she wasn't the one God prepared for me. She wasn't my other half of the whole. I was her half of the whole. She was my half of the whole. And only when they came together could the perfect will of God be done. But if I've got a roving eye, if I would have made my decision based on what my eye was seeing, uh, it blew my mind sometimes how beautiful a girls that would pay me attention and give me some kind of attention. I was always blown away by that because I never saw myself as being attractive because I had acne and still have it at 73 sometimes. And my face looks like it's somebody uh, very cruelly said one time, uh, that it looked like your face was set on fire and somebody put it out with a track shoe because all this. So I, I couldn't ever see past the stars. So when a beautiful girl would give me attention, I was always blown away by that. What if I had let that, let that determine my decision? What if I let my eyes chosen? Now, when God gave me a wife, he gave me a beautiful woman, and she's still beautiful today to me. And I believe others acknowledge she's still beautiful. But the decision wasn't made based on my eyes. I did not marry her based on what I saw with my eyes. I married her based on what God gave me. I married her based on what God said. I've never regretted it. Almost 51 years in a little while. Never regretted it. And again, I can't imagine what my life would have been if I'd let my eyes determine who I was going to marry. Because my eyes, coupled with my loneliness, created a desire. And when there was a positive feedback and even maybe some kind of relationship, it was easy to believe that was love. So I'm ready to make a decision because I, I'm so lonely. I want, I'm ready to make a decision and I want to know the course of my life. And then guess what? God steps in and says, you can do what you want. It's your, your decision. But I've got a plan, and this, this is not it. This is not it. I want to say this again. When I allow my eyes to dwell on what I don't have rather than what I do, it triggers something within me that produces a desire, and now I need whatever it is that I am seeing perhaps then even mentally sifting through ways to obtain it. My imagination says, if I could just do this, do that, have this, have that, etc., then I'll be happy. That's a lie. I remember my classmates would be out on liberty and I'd be sitting in my dorm room and uh, by myself. So lonely it hurt. Begging God, just tell me what her name is. Just tell me what her name is. I prayed that for four years at the Naval Academy, but I never even met her till after I graduated. Couldn't do it. You say, well, why, why wouldn't God just tell you? Well, <laughs> the uh, ironic part of all of that is, if he would have told me and if I would have known who she was when I was asking for all that, I would have 
dismissed it. Because you see, my wife is five and a half years younger than me. And so when I was praying at 18 to know who my wife was going to be, that made her 12 and a half. Okay? 12 and a half. Would I have accepted that from God? No, I wanted a girlfriend right now. I wanted somebody to, to, to satisfy this loneliness right then. And the Lord said, essentially is what he said, because that's what happened. No, I'm not giving you a woman now. I've got a woman for you, but I'm not giving you a woman now because right now I'm the only one you should be seeking your satisfaction from. You're, I'm the one that will take your loneliness away if you'll let me. And so most of the time, I spent time studying the Word of God and praying and whatever, and I grew in God by leaps and bounds. But every once in a while, that loneliness was overwhelming, especially when the guys would go out and they had girlfriends and whatever. And there were even times there that I tried to help God out a time or two. What what a mistake. What a mistake. Roving eyes are a problem because they become lustful eyes. Nothing that is finite will ever fill the infinitely empty place within me. Whether it's companionship I'm looking for, whether it's the nicer car, whatever it is, nothing will fill that empty place in me. I've been blessed to have my share of new cars over the year. But let me tell you something. You're out shopping for that car. You drive that car. Boy, this car's got this and this that my own doesn't have. This can do this, this, and all that. And it's easy to say, wow, this is really great. But let me tell you something. You don't have that car very long till it becomes just a car. Just a car. I feel sorry for the people that it doesn't become just a car, where they continue to worship it as a god rather than it being a means of transportation because that's what they have, and it's their identity. Well, that's not very positive, is it? Whatever it is I'm pursuing, because my eyes have seen it, and now my heart wants it, if God's not giving it, it's never going to turn out positive, ever turn out positive, ever. That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. If I'm pursuing it and God's not giving it and I pursue it till I get it, I'm never going to like the outcome of that, ever, ever. Nothing that is finite will ever fill the empty infinitely empty place within me. That place is designed for God and God alone. In all the years that I have uh, married people and counseled people, I've ended up telling people on numerous occasions, if you didn't have peace and if you weren't happy before you got married, getting married is not going to make you happy. Because you're marrying a human, you're not marrying a God, and God's the only one that can make us truly happy. And therefore, when I'm content, that means the I trust the Father, and he's given me what I need. And he's given me some additions that he can trust me with so that I don't turn them into idols and destroy my soul with. And if I don't have it, I don't need it. And if he's not giving it, I don't need it. Why? Because he's trying to teach me that nothing I have and nothing I pursue can possibly fill my emptiness. It can't. No matter what I try to fill that emptiness with, 
it will never satisfy. It will never suffice. I can let my eyes lead me from place to place, to thing to thing, pleasure to pleasure, person to person. But I will never be filled with any of them. That's why one of the easiest ways to witness to people is to talk about the emptiness they have inside. I rarely ever witness about doctrine when I talk to somebody that needs to be saved. Rarely ever. It doesn't matter what their religion is. There's something I always can talk about that they cannot deny. I look them right in the eye and I talk about the emptiness I used to have and how it made me feel and what it was like when God filled that emptiness. And I know, looking in their eyes, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, that doesn't always mean they're going to do something about it. But the problem they've got is this. When they walk away, they can't walk away from the knowledge that someone has just told them the answer to the question they've always wanted to know. What's missing in me? It's not stuff missing in me. It's not a mate missing in me. It's not, a, it's not a child missing in me. It's not, it's not a, a position missing in me. It's not fame or fortune that's missing in me. It's a relationship with God that's missing with, in me. And he's the only one that fits in that hole. He's the only one that's big enough, that's able as the eternal one to fit in this infinite emptiness I have inside me that only he can satisfy. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says in the Amplified Version, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He also has planted eternity in the hearts of men, eternity in men's hearts and minds, a divinely implanted sense of a purpose working through the ages which nothing under the sun but God alone can satisfy. Yet so that men cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The Living Bible says everything is appropriate in its own time. But though God has planted eternity in the hearts of men, even so, many cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. What beautiful, beautiful words. God has planted, and I've, I've mentioned this, these verses before, this verse before. God has put eternity in my heart. God has put eternity in your heart. It is an empty place reserved for him. And the world is spending their time trying to fill it. How much more empty is a person who has found the answer, experienced the fullness, and then let their, their eyes wander and their flesh lust and they have traded this fullness for this temporary pleasure. How much emptier are they now that they're empty with knowledge than without knowledge? How much emptier are they? Some, out of stubbornness or shame, believing that God can't love them now, won't ever return to God and have that emptiness refilled. Others, they finally reach the place they're going, what am I doing? Just like the prodigal in the pig pen. He came to himself and said, what, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? 
I am so hungry, I'm about to eat. My grandfather used to call it the slop. We'd go slop the hogs when I, my dad would have some leave and we would go down to, to the, the, the farm, one of the farms in Florida. My dad's dad had a farm. My mom's dad had a farm. My dad's dad never kept pigs, but my mom's dad did. And they had a big 55-gallon drum, and they'd put all the leftovers in there, and it'd ferment a little bit over time. And then every evening, he'd take a big bucket, and he'd go out and dip down in that stuff, and he'd take it out to the trough, and he'd pour it in there, and those hogs would come and eat that slop. And the prodigal had got gone so far down, he was so hungry that he was tempted to eat the husks the slop the hogs were given, and it brought him to himself. It shocked him. He said, what am I doing? Even the servants back home with my dad have good food to eat. They have more than enough food to eat. It's good food. And what am I doing here? Why am I letting my pride keep me empty, so hungry that I'm willing to eat the slop of this world trying to find a little bit of satisfaction rather than humbling myself and returning home to my father and confessing my sins to my father and letting him restore himself into my life and me into his life so that our relationship is what it's supposed to be. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, our wandering eyes must be brought under the power of God, under the authority of God, so that our flesh can be drawn under the power of God and the authority of God, so that our hearts can stay focused on God and not be deceived and led away captive into things that we don't really want to be a part of. In Jesus' name, I pray that you and I will let the grace of God work in our lives and work these things out in us in Jesus' name, that God would give us the revelation, open our eyes and let us see where we are and what we're involved in. And if it's not positive spiritually and it's not edifying spiritually, that he will give us the grace to turn away from it and turn back unto God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray these things and speak these things. God bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.